We are in John 9, John 9, if you would like to turn there in your Bible, if you haven't already. I've entitled the message, The Blindness of Willful Unbelief. As I see it, that's really what the passage is dealing with from verse 13 on down to about verse 34. And I think that the value of our time together in the scriptures today will be to articulate for you why people in your life respond the way they do when you come to know Jesus Christ and you want to share with them in a joyful, light-hearted way, just like that man, you see him there, his eyes are open, he's just happy, he's running around, he's bubbling over, and then these big, sour-faced, wretched, whitewashed tombs, as Jesus called them, full of dead men's bones, make their way through the crowd to try to stifle all of that. And in the end, they throw him out of the synagogue for life. So there is so much to learn from this. I want to begin by asking you a couple of questions. First of all, when someone comes to Christ, imagine that a a friend of yours has just recently come to Christ. Who do you think is going to give that individual the most encouragement? Who do you think they can look to to give them the most encouragement? What do you think the answer to that is? It's going to be the people probably that led them to Christ. They are going to be the ones that would rejoice the most in what God has done. That's a fairly easy answer. Let me ask you one that may not be so easy. In a case like that, when someone comes to Christ, who do you think is going to give them the most discouraging remarks? I think the initial reaction would be that it's probably going to be those really out-and-out sinners out in the world that are the real adamant enemies of the gospel, those that write the books that try to disprove Jesus Christ, the evangelists of evolutionism, and so on. That may be the first thought that would cross your mind. But I think Arthur Pink hit it right on target when he said the ones who will treat worst the young believer are not the open infidels and atheists and and those types, but those who are the loudest in their religious professions. And I think that's right on target. Those who are the loudest in their religious professions. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary on John, shared an account that happened with them in their church ministry. He said, years ago, my wife and I worked with an older woman who became a Christian about 50 years of age. She had been a faithful churchwoman for most of her life but she actually never understood the gospel or placed her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When she finally understood what it was all about and became a Christian, she found herself filled with joy and her life almost completely transformed. She couldn't wait to tell her pastor what had happened, and so she did. She went to him and she talked to him, and his response was this. He urged her, above all, not to become emotional about all this, and above all, not to do anything foolish. What happened was as time went by, the relationship so deteriorated to the point that he finally asked her to leave their church. She was just too excited, too emotional, and too glad about what Jesus had done in her life, and it was causing a disturbance and a division in their church, so he kicked her out of the church. It's amazing. It was the pastor of the church that she'd gone to for so many years, and she finally had to just go back and find the small group of people that had led her to Christ, and there she found the encouragement that every Christian needs. You know, it'd be nice if that was just a single and unique accident, but it's not. It's a pattern. 
It goes on all of the time. And the problem is, is that it goes on way too much. And if we're not ready for it, it can be very discouraging for us. And you may think it's extraordinary every time it happens to you. It'd be better to see now, at this point in your life, that it's a very common thing. Just as it happened to this blind man here in this passage. Let's just read a few verses to get into it. And then we'll launch into the things we're going to look at here. In John 9, 13, they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. And you might think that maybe, and these are his neighbors, it seems, you might think that they were just wanting to bring him as a testimony to the Pharisees to reach them, but everything in the account points to the opposite. It seems that they were right in there with him, with the threat that if you came out and said publicly that you believed in Jesus and indicated you wanted to be one of his followers, the Pharisees had given the threat that you would be kicked out of the synagogue so that it's doubtful they had gone to confront the Pharisees. It is far more likely they were on their side and they were just these weird, wimpish, tattletale types that just wanted to stand with the Pharisees against Jesus Christ. Misery loves company, and I think that's exactly what the motivation was. I think it was a tattletale kind of a thing. So they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And he said, natural, quick Hebrew reaction, he's a prophet. And on it goes. In this passage, which has become now one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible, You have the Savior who meets the suffering as he sees the man sitting there in his condition. You have the Savior who underscores the brevity of time that he has to work in this life and to do the things that need to be done. And we have the Savior who works the miracles. And we were well into this last time when we ran out of time. And this time I want to talk about the inability of willful unbelief to deal with a man or a woman touched by Jesus Christ. They brought him who was formerly blind to Jesus. Now, by willful unbelief, I want to be very clear up here in the beginning because I don't want to confuse anybody and leave you needlessly discouraged right up front. By willful unbelief, I know we all have our own doubts and parts of us that are unbelieving. And and yet at the same time, it's worth pointing out and necessary that if you are sincere in your belief in Jesus Christ, and you're just honest that you know there's parts of you that are unbelieving, we're not talking about you at this point. The Bible is so clear when the individual came to, to Jesus and he said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That person is in an, in an entirely different category than these cold-hearted hypocritical Pharisees. They have an unbelief that is totally different. C.S. Lewis put it so well, he said, The Bible itself gives us one short prayer, which is suitable for all who are struggling with beliefs and doctrines. It is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So if you're in that category, you're, you're not 
in the same category of the Pharisees, so please relax and now you can pay attention and we can move on with the message. What do we mean when we're talking about this willful unbelief? Well, they brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. The first thing you see here is that willful unbelief is very cold. And may I say that the reasons individuals find to be unbelieving are from the very beginning, if I could put it in the simplest possible terms, made up. They're subjective. They come from their own minds and their own hearts, and they are really, in the truest sense, irrational. It's like the one who is going to school and the math teacher says, four plus four is eight, and the, and the student says, no, it isn't. And the teacher says, oh, yes, it is, and everybody knows that it is, and you could work on it your whole life and know that, no, it's 13 and a half. And that individual goes off for the next 20 years to prove that it's 13 and a half. And in the end, finds out it still comes out to eight, but just won't believe it. That's willful unbelief. It's irrational. There was so much evidence already in the life of Jesus Christ to any open, soft heart that at this point it is out and out willful unbelief that just says the man's a sinner. Well, why do you say that? Well, he just is. Uh, and beyond that, he doesn't keep the Sabbath, and that's the proof. Well, that's ludicrous. So please understand that whatever willful unbelief grabs for as its reasons, they're usually made up, weak, and just taken by choice rather than to choose Christ. And it is a very, very cold condition. You see, a heart that rejects a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that will willingly go off and embrace a tradition-based religion, does it for a reason. There's a reason you can tell somebody all about Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with God through Him, the grace of God in Him, and they will listen, and they will just turn away and go back to their dead, cold, mechanical religion that's built on traditions. There's a reason. And those type of individuals are cold. They are very cold in their hearts. And the reason is it's very warm in the light and it's very cold in the dark. So to willfully choose a tradition-based religion over the free offer of a relationship with the living God is to end up by choice with a very, very cold heart. So don't be surprised if these individuals are very cold towards you in all the warmth you want to share about Jesus Christ. See, Jesus put it very clear. If you just keep your finger here in John 9 and turn back to John 3, to verse 19. Jesus tells us why individuals do not come to him when the offer is given. John 3.19, he says, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. That's why I like the example of this blind man. Do you believe on the Son of Man? Who is he, Lord, that I might believe? You're looking at him, then I believe. In you, Lord. And he bows and believes immediately. That shows a condition of heart that was just waiting to be led into the light. Anybody that claims to be truly godly or to believe in God based on whatever they know about Him, if they're honest, will instantly come to Christ when they hear the gospel. They'll say, this is what I've been waiting for. All I needed was a clear articulation of who He was, what His name was. 
and how I could come to know him. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it so well. He said, there is no difficulty in believing the gospel intellectually. There is no difficulty in believing the gospel because it's all so reasonable. He said, anytime you have somebody that doesn't believe the gospel, it is a moral reason, never intellectual. Think about it. A child can understand it. So to reject Christ, it's not a problem of not being able to understand. It is a problem of loving darkness rather than light. It is a problem of saying, I want my sin more than I want anything else. It's moral. It's not intellectual. So to have somebody like this group of individuals here, who in the face of all that Jesus has done to reveal himself, reject him, and yet claim to love God and claim to love him through their religion and claim to prove it by how devout they are to the details and minutia of the traditions, it's a big farce. They love darkness. And that's why they keep the traditions and the empty religions rather than trading it in for a relationship with Jesus Christ. William Guthrie put it so well when he said, God excludes none if they do not exclude themselves. The only reason there's any living human being who's heard of Christ that did not respond and come to him is that they have pushed themselves away from that magnetic love and light. They have excluded themselves. These religious men prefer the darkness. Think of it. You see them all dressed up in their robes. They look so fine and so religious and so proper. And the way they glide along, they have that religious walk. And they so often speak in these really soft and pious religious tones. And it's as though they're just so near to God that He makes you monotone. And that's, it just projects that image. I'm reminded of when the Bastille, the great prison in Paris was about to be destroyed in 1789. There was a convict brought out who had been confined in one of the gloomy cells there for years and years. They took him out and they said, we want to set you free. But instead of joyfully welcoming his liberty, he said, no, no, please take me back. And he begged to go back to his dark cell. You see, he had been in the dark so long that when he got just a little glimpse of the sunshine, he didn't like it. And his only desire was to go back to the murky, dark dungeon where he had lived and stay there until he died. He loved the darkness and rejected the light. That's what these people are like. And they're not confined to the scribes and the Pharisees. They are countless in number in our world today. See, because they lived in willful unbelief, they zealously filled their lives with their own self-styled religion built on the traditions of men. And so much of their religion was devoted to the Sabbath rules. There has to be a focus always in all of this. And their focus in a big way was the Sabbath. Look at John 9, 14. And this is what they used to prove that Jesus is nothing but a base, wretched sinner. It says, now it was the Sabbath. I can see John, he's sitting, you know, he's a human being. He walked with Christ for years. He wrote this in his later days. I can see him sitting with the pen and just or dictating, whatever, and he just stops, and he's just marveling. He chose this on purpose. He's going back across his whole time with Jesus, and he chose this because it stood out. And he thinks back on that whole incident with the blind man. He's just thinking, oh, there's just so much there. And I think he wrote this part to show us the whole idea of, of how wretched willful unbelief is. 
And he's marveling at how they could make such a big deal of the Sabbath and condemn Jesus so much, but that's the way of it. And in verse 14, it says, Now it was a Sabbath when Jesus made clay and opened his eyes. And the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Their whole world was so devoted to the Sabbath and to inventing rules, new rules, detailed rules concerning the Sabbath that they put onto some scripture, maybe that was in the Old Testament, and they would interpret that and reinterpret that and reinterpret that and reinterpret that, and at each step tack some more man-made rules onto it. And they were so into, they prided themselves in this because this was their way of showing how enlightened they were to so understand the things of God in such a deep way they could come up with so many little things that they tacked on to what was effectively a very simple law in the Bible. And so they were dedicated to inventing new rules and they delighted in busting people that broke them because it only made them look more spiritual. Now, you have to understand here that when they say that Jesus broke the Sabbath, Jesus did not break the Sabbath in terms of what God had said in the Bible. He broke their man-made traditions. That, that has to be very clear in your mind. And what they had done is they had articulated the whole idea of not working on the Sabbath in just a bizarre way. Even in their minds and in their rules, even the simplest acts constituted work. Let me just give you some examples of what we're forbidden to do on the Sabbath. And if you did these things, you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. For example, a man may not fill a dish with oil and put it beside a lamp, which would be an oil-burning lamp and pottery, and put it beside a lamp and put the end of the wick into it. You could not do that. If you did that, put a little oil in a little pot and put a wick in it, then you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. They said that if a man extinguishes a lamp on the Sabbath to spare the lamp or the oil or the wick, then he's guilty of breaking the Sabbath. So if a, a lamp was burning, he said, well, you know, I don't need this light now. I'll just go ahead and put it out and save the oil, save the wick, and so on. And they caught you, then you were guilty of breaking the Sabbath. They said that a man may not go out on the Sabbath with sandals shod with nails taking the idea that you weren't to carry burdens on the Sabbath, and if you had nails in your sandals, then that constituted a burden, so you're carrying this burden around and you're breaking the Sabbath. They came up with the idea that a man couldn't cut his fingernails on the Sabbath, or that he couldn't pull out a hair of his head or his beard. Then obviously you couldn't comb your hair on the Sabbath, you know, so you go around all wild looking on the Sabbath. Because you comb your hair, you're going to pull out several of them at least. So you look at this, we laugh at this, and yet it's obvious in the eyes of, of such laws then that to make clay out of spit would certainly constitute working, and it was forbidden to work on the Sabbath. Further, they had outlined that it was forbidden to heal on the Sabbath. So that basically their rules were that you could only give medical attention if somebody's life was in danger. And even then you could only keep the patient from getting worse. You could not do anything to heal them. For example, if you had a toothache on the Sabbath, 
you know, their vinegar was basically sort of a diluted type wine in those days. If you thought, well, I'll just suck a little wine through my teeth through a straw. I don't know if they had straws in those days, but if I'll suck a little wine through my teeth, a little vinegar to ease the pain, you were seeking a healing on the Sabbath and you were breaking the Sabbath. If someone broke their arm on the Sabbath and you set about to set it to heal them, you were breaking the Sabbath. If you dislocated your shoulder and somebody tried to help you to get it back in, you're breaking the Sabbath. So when Jesus comes along and He heals a blind man on the Sabbath, He is a major Sabbath breaker because He actually healed a guy. And obviously being blind didn't put Him in mortal danger, so He wasn't trying to save His life, so it was clear that He was just flagrantly breaking the Sabbath. You know, I think that Jesus obviously knew all this. He knew everything. And I think that the reason that he did this, there are many reasons. One of them, I think, is just to send a direct message to them of how wrong they were. Jesus never beat around the bush. When people were wrong, he took direct measures to get them right so their soul could be saved. What I'm really saying is he wasn't like so many of us. So many of us who would avoid the issue and just say to these guys, you know, come on, fellas, let me give you a hug. Let's just all get along. We all kind of love God in our own way. Jesus was not like that. So he sends a direct shot to them with this blind man. In his own simple way, every statement he makes drives the truth deeper. And the harder they fight him, and the more he responds with his simple answers, the more they are nailed, and the madder they get. And yet they continue to reject. You know, you would think... If these were men of God, if a guy who was born blind suddenly could see, and it was on the Sabbath which they saw set aside to worshiping God, they would have been on their faces before God, worshiping Him and thanking Him and patting the guy on the back and saying, Give me a hug. I can't believe it. God has been at work. You are so blessed. There was absolutely none of that. You know why? Because willful unbelief is very, very cold. It cannot rejoice in the work of the Spirit of God in an individual's life. It's incapable of it. It is also divisive. Willful unbelief is divisive. In verse 16, it said, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God. Well, who says so? Well, we say so. It's irrational. They hated him, so they just start with a false premise. They have their, what you could call a pre-conclusion. They don't search out the facts and make a conclusion. They have a pre-conclusion coming in, and that was, we hate him. He's taking our following, and we hate him. Therefore, we will find every reason possible to destroy him. And it's divisive. Anytime willful unbelief meets with a heart that truly wants to believe in the living Christ and have a living relationship with Him, they divide and separate. And that's what happens here. Some of the Pharisees, verse 16, said, This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Others said, maybe like Nicodemus, whispering from the back, Well, wait, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division. In other words, as soon as anybody said such a thing, there was a major division and they split into groups. You see, these people are what I call traditionalists. Their whole religion is made up of man's tradition. There's a reason they want it never changed. I think you could figure it out. 
I mean, if you think you're righteous before God by your mechanical ceremonies and rituals, then you want to get it nailed down to make it as mindless and easy as possible so you can go through your traditional things and do it as easy as you can and go on about your life that's totally disconnected from God and basically live as a practical atheist though you claim and shove your traditions forth as your proof of believing in God you live as though God doesn't exist but you put in your time, you put in your ceremonies and you do it so well that you look so good and thus you're so right with God so when this guy from the back of the crowd or whoever it was says but wait, how could this be if he's a sinner? it's not possible well, there was a division because traditionalists who are always walking in willful unbelief don't like their way upset and they are intolerant people and they are divisive people. And the tragedy is that they are so closed off to the endless workings of God's Holy Spirit. They cannot rejoice in His work. And this isn't confined to just those that flat out don't know Christ. There are some that do, but are so brainwashed in the traditions of their denomination or their sect or whatever, they are not open any longer to the working of the Spirit, and they can't rejoice when He's working in your life. And they certainly can't understand when you're being led by the Spirit to take some step of faith, and you go, you're now confirmed, and you're moving out, and you go to share it with them, and they just give you a blank, cold stare. It's never been done that way with us. We don't do it that way. Are you part of that weird group? Are you a freak? A Jesus freak? Don't get emotional about this. You don't really think God talks to you like that, do you? It's just always unable to rejoice when there was a vision among them. Another thing here is not only is it very cold, willful unbelief, it's divisive, but also willful unbelief, get this straight in your thinking. It ignores the facts. It ignores the facts. John Calvin said, unbelieving men have no ears. I like that. It's just a good way of looking at it. They don't. These men had no ears. They heard Jesus throughout his whole ministry. I mean, we spend our lives studying his words, his sermons, and we're so blessed. And yet these men only hated him more and more and more. They had no ears. Willful unbelief has no ears. They said in verse 17 to the blind man, Again, again. What do you say about him because he has opened your eyes? He said he's a prophet. Now, that answer is really profound. Because these are the guys that make it their life to study the scriptures. This is a beggar over here who sits on the steps of the temple every day, just begging for enough money to stay alive. And they say, what do you say about all this? He said, he's a prophet. Immediate reaction. What does that really mean? Well, it's an answer that's so profound because it takes in the sweep of the entire Old Testament. You see, these men knew that in the Old Testament, their scriptures at the time, their Bible, that a prophet was often tested by the signs that he could produce. They knew that when Moses, who they claimed to be their main hero in a minute, they knew that when he went to Egypt, one of the big issues was the signs that he put out in front of Pharaoh. I mean, that was a major thing in them being delivered, right? They knew that Elijah, for example, proved that he was from God by the signs. So 
Those are just two examples. You'll find it all the way through the Old Testament. When he says he's a prophet, what he's saying is just like the scriptures you study and teach us, tell us prophets from God have signs from God. Obviously, he's from God. Seeing as how this has never been done before ever in the history of the world. And now I see this man to me. I love him the more I study him. Because here is this blind little beggar man. He's touched by Christ and whatever else he is, he is suddenly a brave witness for Jesus. He knew what the Pharisees thought about Jesus. He knew as he squared off with them, probably very interesting to him to be able to see their ugly faces finally, because ungodliness is always ugly, no matter how handsome the skin, but he knew that to take a stand on Jesus' side was to be excommunicated. I mean, you sit and you listen day by day to all the people talking, going to the temple. You learn it all, really. So he knew that to take a stand with Jesus was to be excommunicated. But he made a statement and he took his stand. He effectively said, look, I'm bound to believe in him. I'm bound to stand by him because all he has done for me. And I just pray to God that we would all have that attitude. God has done so much for us. And we're just so often just so concerned about our our little world that we will slip and be slithery and just rather than saying, you know what, why are you smiling today? Well, because I'm a Christian. I love the Lord and He's blessing me. It's wonderful. Do you know Him? And instead it's like, oh, um, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? Nice blue sky. Isn't it great to have a blue sky? And we just kind of weasel our way around and just sort of, God has done so much for me. How can I help but smile? He is an example to all of us. Willful unbelief is cold, divisive, ignores all the facts about Jesus. Look at verse 18. It says, But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind or received his sight, until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. But even then they're not going to believe. You know why? That leads to the next thought. And watch for this in your own life, your own witness, your own relationships. Willful unbelief always wants more proof. It ignores the facts and that it always wants more proof. And I might as well say that it is never satisfied with the further proof. So here they don't believe him. And so then they go in verse 19 and they talk to his parents. And in verse 19 they ask them saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents are total weasels. His parents answered them and they said, Well, we know he's our son. And yeah, he was born blind, but by the means he now sees, we don't know. I mean, or who opened his eyes? We don't know. You liars. You're his parents. He's never seen you. The first thing he's going to do is go find you and touch your faces and look into your eyes and tell you how it happened. You're big liars. We don't know. Yeah, that's him. How it happened. How do we know? You know, these things happen. No, they don't. They never happen. And then, you know, they just send them off to him. And his, then we find the reason. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. It's flat out lie. For the Jews had agreed already. If anyone confessed he was the Christ, he would be, literally the Greek is unsynagogued, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, for that reason, his parents said, we don't know, we know he's our son, but you know what? Hey, he's of age. 
Ask him. He's legal. Ask him. Let's get out of here, Martha. I tend to think that's why he was a beggar, really. I think his parents just were those kind of people. Why else would their son be a beggar? And so with that kind of lovelessness, siding with the willful unbelief of the others, here, he's of age, ask him. Now, when it says that in verse 22 that if anyone confessed he was Christ, they would be put out of the synagogue, basically they had a law or a rule, whatever you want to call it, where they would excommunicate people if they did certain sins or certain wrongdoing. And what they did is they drug Jesus into this. So now, effectively, what they have done is they, had, they have made the greatest sin of all to confess Christ and to follow Him. And if you do that, you will receive the worst kind of excommunication because they had a couple of different kinds. So let's just say you got real wild and sinful for a while. What they would do is unsynagogue you. And it could be for, say, seven days. You've been so wild and sinful, we're going to unsynagogue you for seven days. You can't come to the synagogue, you can't fellowship with the people, you can't buy from their booths in the marketplace, you can't do business with them, so you're going to have a really bad week. Can't buy things, can't do business, can't fellowship. Basically, the impression was, and you're also going to be shut off from God. But after maybe a week, you'll figure out how bad you've been. You'll repent and we'll put you back in. If you did something really, really bad, they'd maybe give you a month out. They had a word for it. It was called the sharem. And it might last for some fixed period. But the idea is well, you were shut out, ostracized. But the ultimate sharem was for life. And that would be where you were banished from the synagogue for life, you were publicly marked, and you were shut out by everybody. You were cursed in the presence of the people, and you were cut off from God and banned from the synagogue for life. In other words, they stripped you of your life. Everybody you knew would turn their back on you, no one would sell or buy or sell with you, and you were cut off from your friends, and they were paranoid lest it would happen to them, so they would run. In a moment of time, they could ruin your life. And what they said here with their sharem in this case was, anybody caught identifying with Jesus is going to get the ultimate sharem. So here's a guy, he's been touched by Christ, and he knows all of this, and he stands boldly. And he tells of what he has done for him. That's why he's such an example. And you see, in spite of the fact that no one searched the entire Old Testament, which starts with the beginning of the history of man, and it works its way out, no one in the history recorded in the entire Old Testament was ever healed that was born blind. This is a healing of such a monumental nature that it literally puts a message into the mouth of this simple beggar. There is no way you can get around this one. There is no way you can deny this one. There is no way you can say this is not from God. This man, Jesus Christ, is God. That is the only explanation for this. But you see, they went off to the parents seeking more facts, but the facts are never enough for willful unbelief. It always seeks more proof, and so they did not believe. And the reason behind all of that is because, just like in the garden, man wanted to be God. In the end, willful unbelief is egocentric. It's me-centered. I want to be my own God. And so, in verse 24... They again called the man who was blind. And they said to him, 
Give God the glory. We know this man is a sinner. How do you know? He never sinned. He never did one sinful thing in all of his life and among any of them. Well, we just know. Give God the glory. We know this man's a sinner. And he answered and he said, Whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see. What are you going to do with that? You know what I like about this? When I was one month old as a Christian, the first Bible study that I heard in a very small setting was in John 9. And I remember the one thing that stuck with me all these years from that message was that statement. I don't know everything about him. All I know is I was blind and now I see it. It's because of him. And I remember the guy giving the study said, you know what, that's our testimony for all of us and it will be till the end of our life. We were blind and now we see and it's because of Jesus. And I took that, immediately began to go out and witness on the street all the time. And I can remember people, you know, the soup, this was in Eugene, Oregon, where you get the super wackos from the university there. You know, the super new agey cosmic children out there that are astro projecting themselves into the nowhere of the nothingness. And I would be in the mall on the street witnessing to these people and they'd come up with all these clever, bizarre answers, you know, Eastern religions and everything. And I can remember standing there as, you know, one two-month-old Christian and saying, you know something, I have my Bible with me. You know something, I don't have every answer to every one of your questions, but I do know this, I was blind, I lived in darkness, I had a wretched life, and now I see. And I know where I'm going when I die. I'm going to heaven. And I know it's because of Jesus Christ. He died for me and he rose again. And I was able to lead more people to Christ just like that with this simple gospel. I want to say to you today, some of you have a hard time understanding the real deep doctrines of Scripture. We get going into them in some of our studies and it's like a big flyby. There it goes again. Like the big Star Wars thing coming over and it's gone, you know. Warp speed, light speed, it's gone. It's, oh, thank goodness it's over. Get me back to God so loved the world and I'll be happy. That's all right, but please realize you still have a powerful testimony and nobody can take that from you. And your testimony, what He's done for you, no one can take that from you. And as clever as people get... And as great their arguments might be, and as intellectually sharp they might be to sort of shred you, make you look like a little dummy and an imbecile, you know, they don't have what you have. And when they look in your eyes and they see that twinkle in there, they have no explanation for it, especially when it's there the next day and the next day and the next day. That's what bugged me so much about Christians before I was born again. I mean, I was studying and devouring every one of these kinds of books to give me every kind of argument like this. And I loved it when Christians came and witnessed to me. And I would just have these mental wrestling matches with them and throw little emotional hand grenades and intellectual hand grenades and time-release bombs into their minds and just try to see how miserable I could make them. But every time I was miserable because I'm just talking and all the while I'm looking at this twinkle in their eyes. You see, some of you don't realize you're twinkling even when you don't think so. Because when you live in the darkness and you encounter the light, and some of you aren't the brightest bulbs around, we'll be honest, but when you encounter the light, you see it. In World War II, Churchill gave the order when the Germans were bombing London, he said, do not light a match. Because when a German comes over in an airplane in the blackout, if one person lights one match to light a cigarette, that light can be seen from 11 miles away in the sheer darkness. Listen, when you're coming at them, 
And you may not have the brightest glow in your eyes or the biggest twinkle. When you're in the darkness, man, and there are those twinkling eyes with Christ in your life, they see it. And it made me miserable. And finally, truthfully, in the end, that's what got me. I saw that they had the light. And every guru I studied and every weird professor in the college and the, in the um, existentialists, they're maniacs is all they are. They believe they're the masters of their own destinies and all of this. These people, why are they all so dead all the time? It's like the Beatles when they left the Maharishi. And he said, why are you leaving? That's more like Clouseau than the Maharishi. But they said, why are you leaving? And they said, well, you should know. You dead guy, you know? It's not there. Look, I don't know everything, but I do know this. I was blind and now I see. I remember just sharing that with one individual and they got all heavy. I mean, they said, what are you, Billy Graham all of a sudden? Quoting all the Bible all over the place? I mean, all he's saying was this. I didn't know anything else. They were all convicted and getting all hyper and everything. Stop quoting all that Bible on me. Fine. I ran out of material anyway. Well, might as well be here, you know. No one can take your testimony. Once you were blind, now you see. And you have the Holy Spirit with you. And what you do know about Christ is enough to save you. And it's enough to save anyone else. And that's the wonderful thing I see about this man. Here they are. And they're facing this guy. And he just has the sweetest testimony to them. And they just say to him, verse 26, they said to him again, What did he do to you? How do you open your eyes? He answered, I told you already. You didn't listen. You can see him smirking now. Why do you want to hear it again? Twinkling at them with these brand new eyes, you know. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to be his disciples? You know. And they reviled him and they said, we're talking about how egocentric willful unbelief is. They reviled him and they said, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. Wait a minute, I thought you were Abraham's. See, in the last chapter was Abraham, but Jesus shredded them on that issue. So they got off that real quick. And now they're Moses' disciples. Because he said, if you were Abraham's disciples and descendants, you'd live like him and walk with God like him. That's the end of it, because they're so far from that. Now we're Moses' disciples. And we know God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he's from. And here's the guy again. It's just every time it's so simple, but it's so powerful. Verse 30, And the man answered, and he said to them, Why thou, this is a marvelous thing. You don't know where he came from, and yet a man born blind. He's opened my eyes. Hello? You don't know where he came from? And then this. Now we know that God does not hear sinners because they think He's a sinner. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears Him. He's a sinner? If He's a sinner, how could God hear Him to do this miracle through Him in my life, a miracle that's never been done in all of history? That doesn't happen through sinners by your own teaching. But by your own teaching, if a man is a worshiper of God, God hears him. This man took the power of God and brought it to my life. There is no denying. He must, by your own teaching, be a worshiper of God. And you can see him, it's like, Aah! And in verse 32, Since the world began, it's unheard of anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered to him. Now it's just raw, dirty, street fighting verbiage that gets violent. 
And it's just this. You were completely born in sin and you are teaching us. Get him out of here. And they threw him out and they excommunicated him for life. They had no answer at all. Spurgeon, and I want to leave you with this thought because we're out of time. Spurgeon said, there are no unbelievers anywhere but on earth. Think about that. There are no unbelievers anywhere but on earth. There are no unbelievers in heaven and there will be no unbelievers in hell. There are only willful, unbelieving people here. And it isn't because they can't understand it. And it isn't because Jesus doesn't touch your heart and reveal himself to you. It's because men love darkness rather than light. Please realize today, if you don't know the Lord, he loves you so much. And he's already done so much to reveal himself to you. And that if you're an unbeliever, it isn't because you can't understand it. It's because you don't want to. And yet... He is the only answer for your life. Don't fight him anymore. Open your heart and let him rescue you. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word. Jesus, we thank you that once we were blind, but now we see and it's because of you. God, we give you all the glory. We pray, Lord Jesus, you would continue to flood the eyes of our understanding with light, that you would continue to draw us, Lord, that we might run after you and walk with you in intimacy. And we pray, Lord, that taking the example of this blind beggar here touched by you who became so bold because you'd done so much for him that we would go out and we would just be joyful, honest, forthright witnesses of what you have done for us. And Lord, we pray you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to go forth and be the light of the world and we'd find it to be the greatest joy of our life to tell people why and to point them to you. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.